Thanks for tuning into this podcast from KYMN Radio. Take us with you anywhere and download the TuneIn app for your computer or smartphone and listen to us live whenever and wherever you want. Locally owned, independently programmed, 95.1, The One. The KYMN Climate Show is a monthly feature here on 95.1 The One and AM 1080, discussing changes in climate and the science behind it. And now, your hosts, Alan Anderson and Bruce Moreland. Welcome to the KYMN Climate Show with Bruce Moreland and Alan Anderson, where we discuss climate issues in the news and then dig into the stories behind those stories. Today, we're going to talk a bit about freedom and the different methods that can be used for addressing the climate challenge. Okay, so Alan, what, what, what kinds of stories have we found in, in the recent weeks here? Well, before we get to uh, discussing those challenges, we bring you, as usual, some stories. And the first story that I've got is headlined as Mega Drought Persists. New projections show that key Colorado River reservoirs could sink to a record low later this year. And that's going to be uh, causing a lot of angst in the whole Southwest because uh, due to drought, climate change, and overuse, the key reservoir in the Colorado River, is, which is Lake Mead, is projected to sink uh, lower than since they filled it in the 30s. Wow. And potentially triggering significant water cutbacks. Um, Lake Mead, uh, at a time when it should be filling from melting snow, it's currently only at 39% full. And Lake Powell, the river's second largest reservoir, is only at 36% full. And in large measure, this is due to what is now a 20-year drought. And this is quite a serious issue because the Colorado River provides water to 40 million Americans living in seven western states and also Mexico and irrigates more than 5 million acres of farmland. And the city of Phoenix and Tucson in particular, uh, if they have to implement emergency water uh, rationing essentially, which they may next year, they could potentially see their water allocation reduced by one-third. And if you can imagine the city of Phoenix with its millions of people, uh, everybody having to reduce their water consumption by a third, that would be a, quite the challenge. That will be a challenge. You know, when my dad lived in uh, Arizona, he, he called us up one time and talked, and he said, you know, we had a 12-inch rain yesterday. It was 12 inches between drops. <laughs> <laughs> and they were excited about it. And and yet, when I talked to my friends that lived down there, they, they just emphasize, oh, everybody, all the politicians assure us we won't run out of water. Politicians. Politicians uh, telling people what they want to hear. Um, <clears throat> so to conclude this particular story, um, uh, in discussing the challenge with farmers and what would happen if they had their water allotment cut, uh, quite a number of them say that they will have to either leave land fallow, uh, maybe 30 or 40% of their land, and 
lay off employees and buy less seed and fertilizer and equipment. So it would hurt a lot, as they say, and uh, a big challenge. And essentially, it's a math problem. Lake Mead normally releases 10 million acre feet of water per year. And you might remember that an acre foot is one acre, which is 200 square feet. It would be, it'd be uh, 4,000 square feet, right. uh, 200 on a side, and one foot deep. 10 million of those released every year. But the problem is less water than that is coming back into the reservoir every year. So the reservoir is going down and down. So this uh, from 2000 to 2018 is the driest 19-year stretch the Southwest has seen since the 1500s. And they're anticipating that the drought is going to continue. So there is great angst in the Southwest to the people who are actually paying attention. You know, with that kind of data, you have to wonder whether it's really a drought or if this is the normal and what we thought was... Uh, normal is actually a, a wet season. <laughs> a few well, wet years, you know. And and one of the uh, one of the um, water specialists from that area saying that with the changes predicted by climate change, and part of that is dry areas becoming even drier, that scarcity is going to be the new normal. Uh, yes. So, Bruce, what's your story? Well, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, the change in the way that we're talking about climate change. And it turns out that, you know, for years we've, we've, we've had the pushback from various groups that, oh, climate change isn't really happening and it's a fake. And, you know, and they, they, they fool with the data or, t- or actually torture the data to, to make it look like they're telling the truth. Well... It's turned out that that's now a failing tactic, and it's it's the even the professional deniers have realized they can no longer sell that particular lie. So what they've shifted to is denying the impacts of climate change. So although seven in ten Americans understand that climate change is man-made and is a serious problem, uh, they're still getting this pushback from these denier groups and they aren't like i said they aren't denying the existence anymore they're denying the, the impacts so 7 in 10 in in uh, congressional districts 1 and 2 which is kind of our home area here uh 71% think it's happening and over half thinks that, that it's human caused and another 60% are worried about it and amongst farmers they're already having to adjust a little bit to the changing realities. And they're like the insurance companies. They can't go with bumper sticker slogans. they got to go with what happens in the field. And uh, so they're, the good news for them is they can be a part of the solution, and we'll be talking about that more in the future because it's a really intriguing idea. But for now, two-thirds of Americans in CD1 and 2, that's our congressional districts, support a carbon tax. And 72% support regulations. Oh, right, yeah, Ooh, we're going to have regulations talk in a few minutes here. So all of that comes from the Yale Climate Communications stuff. So, Very good. And more on that later. But uh, I, my, my next story is from another country. Germany's Supreme Court hands youth 
a victory in the climate change fight. And uh, the German government in 2019 passed a law uh, stating that they wanted to bring down carbon emissions to net zero by 2050, but they only gave details on how that was going to work to 2030. And this group of young people basically sued the government saying, you don't have a plan to actually get us to net zero by 2050 because you don't have any plans after 2030. Nothing specific, no targets. And if you don't make a plan, uh, that's the same as doing nothing. And it will be uh, unfair to our fundamental liberty if you don't mitigate this burden on us. And <clears throat> so they actually won the lawsuit and Germany's Supreme Court ordered the government to make actual targeted uh, reasonable plans on how they're going to get to net zero by 2050. Mm -hmm. And there was obviously great, great celebration uh, among, among the youth. Uh, and a quote from one of the litigants, climate justice is a fundamental right, and today's inaction must not be allowed to harm our freedom and our rights in the future. And from my point of view, that seems pretty hard to argue with. And yet, here in the United States, we have a very similar lawsuit. It's called Juliana versus the USA. And there's an organization called Our Children's Trust, which is waging this fight. And they've actually won in some of the lower courts. And it appears that it might very well be headed to our Supreme Court. And basically what the young people are saying is, we're on a path to destroy our future. And we know it. So the government has a responsibility to get us off of that path by going carbon neutral. And if you'd like to learn more about that lawsuit, go to www.ourchildrenstrust.org. Uh, all one word, lowercase, ourchildrenstrust.org. It's a fascinating story, and it's actually a, a place where if you've got money to donate, donating to that fight uh, would be something that could really make a difference particularly if they win. Indeed, if they win. Well, that uh, leads me to my next story, which is uh, going back to the idea that denying climate change has become a failing tactic. And one of the problems that we have when you have a really complex system, uh, you know, they say that ignorance is bliss, and in a way it is, because when you're ignorant of what's going on, you can ignore the ice coming into the, you know, the hole in the boat. You can ignore all that kind of stuff. And in, in modeling, there's a thing called a tipping point. And the, the easiest way to understand what a tipping point is is just think of a bowling pin. You know, when you tick that bowling pin, you're trying to pick up that fancy spare, and it just kind of wobbles, and you're wondering, is it going to go over or not? Well, you're hoping it reaches a tipping point. And as it wobbles, if it happens to find a little divot in the bottom of the pin for, for, where it's uneven, it'll fall over and you're happy. Well, that's the tipping point phenomenon. So let me uh, share, if I may, another tipping point. If you've got a glass with ice in it, 
even if it's very warm day, the glass with ice in it will stay cold until all the ice is gone, at which point you reach a tipping point, and then the water starts to warm up quickly. And that's actually because the thermal equilibrium, the, the thermal equilibrium at the freezing point takes a lot of energy to get past it. But once you're past it, it's easy to warm things up. So in any case, in a complex system like climate, there may be multiple tipping points. And what those are are places where something, once you get past that point, it's very, you can't get back. That's the tipping point, just like the bowling pin doesn't jump back up on its own. Uh, but the the thing that makes them worse is when they have a feedback loop and you get past the tipping point and then the feedback loop amplifies the process that was making it. So the Making it even worse and worse. Making it even worse faster. Uh, and the example that most people understand is that the ice sheets over the Arctic Ocean, as those erode away, and you get less and less coverage. Water absorbs energy from the sun a lot better than ice and snow do. Ice and snow reflect it back into space. And the there are feedback loops involving the Antar the Ar- Antarctic ice sheet, and where the where it's starting to more of it's floating on water, and that's bad for the Ar- for the ice sheet because now it's melting on both sides. And water is a very water on ice is a very effective way to melt that ice. Not because there's more heat content in the water than there is in the air above it. So we've got uh, tipping points uh, associated with the Amazon rainforest and just forests in general. You've got the concern about permafrost. And the problem with the permafrost is there's a lot of methane sequestered in the permafrost. And as it melts, it releases. And that's, of course, an amplification. So the tipping point is it just things get worse. There's also uh, the Atlantic circulation, which has actually been in slowdown since the 50s, and the Greenland ice sheet, the ice loss is accelerating. There are huge rivers that are flowing out of there. And there are some other ones. I'll put them on the website. Uh, Examples of things where we've gone past the tipping point. Yes, indeed. And uh, just an audience reminder, you're listening to KYM and Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield. And this is The Climate Show with Bruce Moreland and Al Anderson. Okay, so our main story today is what are the solutions that we can use for this problem? And I'm going to spend a little bit of time explaining what the problem is, which is the tragedy of the commons. And then we're going to talk about some solutions that we've tried in the past. So the first thing is, what do, what do we mean by tragedy of the commons? And let's let's talk about freedom and liberty and things that conservatives are often, you know, very strongly in favor of. And they think that free markets are the necessary condition for individual freedom. In other words, if you don't have free markets, you don't have a free people. And that's kind of a, you know, a touchstone for conservative thinkers. And they believe that free markets are best at innovation. They think that the market makes choices. You vote with your money. There's a reason why we don't have Betamax anymore. Now, that's an interesting example, and I love to use it, because the market voted for VHS, and the market was wrong. It turns out that Betamax was a slightly superior technology, but not in the eyes of the free people that were buying the technologies. 
And through a combination of things, Betamax lost out to the inferior but more popular VHS. And how important was that? Well, that was about the most unimportant example I could think of (laughs) where the market made the wrong choice. But anyway, a free people are live without a strong government intrusion. They don't have to put up with people knocking on their door at 2 in the afternoon to say, hey, I want to check your thermostat and make sure you don't have it set too high. Now, if you live in some countries, you do have to worry about that. You have to worry about some pointy-headed intellectual bureaucrat, overpaid and underworked. I mean, we've all seen the picture of the one guy digging a hole and three people supervising. And uh, you, you know how the... <laughs> The the conservative joke is that when we got the the impact or the uh, booster money from the government for the COVID, uh, we just hired more managers, more people to stand around while the hole was being dug. So, in any case, uh, in in, a, in I really like to cross the aisle here. So I found a nice quote from President Biden in a recent speech to Congress. He called the current leadership crisis an inflection point, and he sees the world divided just as it was about a hundred years ago back in the. 1920s and 1940s um, into democracies and autocracies. And I'm going to tell you the Chinese response to that autocracy claim is they're claiming, yeah, and it works. Look what we were able to do with the pandemic. All you free countries, you just struggled and, you know, extra thousands and tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people may be dying. The Chinese system is superior and then they beat their chest a little bit. And it remains for people who believe in democracy to prove them wrong in the free markets. So, but free markets, the economists who talk about that warn us that an unconstrained market can create opportunities for cheaters to cheat. And the overgrazing of the commons creates a tragedy. And that was where the tragedy of the commons comes from. It used to be that the, the village would have a common area and people would bring their sheep in there to graze. And since there was no cost to that grazing, they grazed the commons down to zip, basically and, destroying the commons. And because no one, <coughs> no one owned it, right. they said, well, uh, I, can, I can use it for free, and if it gets damaged, it, it, it's not mine, so not that's mine. okay. Exactly. It's not mine. I'll and, still have my own land to graze them, but here's some free grass. You know? And air pollution and water pollution are two other examples. Yes, the, the the modern examples are overfishing in Alaska fishing waters. They've had a problem there and they solve that by some methods and uh we've got air pollution issues that, you know, if you've been to China, you know that the air pollution there is a different category, different <laughs> level than we have in the US anymore and it's because we took actions. So, Anthropogenic climate change is the poster child for a tragedy of the commons because it comes about primarily because it turns out that, and who knew, who knew that industrial-scale food production, right, the change in farming practice that happened between 8,000 and 10,000 years ago, and the introduction of the internal combustion engine for transport, who thought that would change the planet? And the answer is, scientists did in the 18 and early 1900s, even politicians did by the 1980s, but you get the merchants of doubt in there, and they have co-opted our democracy and replaced it with an unreasoning tribal battle that we're losing. And if I can just uh, interject a reminder about the merchants of doubt, uh, we had our first big exposure to them during the tobacco wars when tobacco companies hired real scientists to make the case 
that we could not prove that smoking caused cancer or emphysema. So since we couldn't prove it, we didn't need to do anything. Right. They were selling doubt on the science. And when they lost the fight on doubt there, they changed over to a, you know, well, we'll just brand it. And I don't know if you've been following the news, but now it turns out that menthol is, half of the planet wants to ban menthol because it makes it easier to sell cigarettes. More addictive. More addictive. Well, it's more addictive. It masks some of the nastiness. <clears throat> and, at the, and the other half of the planet is saying, and it's marketed primarily to, to you know minority communities that don't have as much chance to fight back. So it's just, it's a big fight. Everybody, everybody's against it. We'll see where that goes. So anyway, how do we respond to these tragedies of this commons? Well, there's three basic methods that we've seen used. We see the command and control methods, which is the autocratic method. We've seen subsidies, which is kind of a modified free market method. It's not very free. And we've got markets themselves. We can modify the market somehow. So let's talk about each of those in turn. Command and control, when I'm thinking of command and control, I'm thinking of things like the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, that we put, that Nixon signed in. Was it Nixon in the 70s? Nixon in the 70s. Early 70s, yeah. Before he ran into a couple of brick walls. Um, he put in, we've got that. We've got things like the CAFE standards, which increase the mileage on cars. These are all mandates, and they can work. They can work. Chlorofluorocarbons were destroying the ozone in the atmosphere, and there was a consensus, and by the late 1980s, we had something in place to take care of it. You know, the science said we got a problem. The politicians said, well, we can fix that. We'll just command and control it. And it works in that sense. But it also has a, a big failure, which is that it concentrates power in the government and creates opportunities to use that power to gain exceptions. So in the case of uh, the EPA and the Clean Water Act, there were exceptions put in for non-point sources. And that has turned Iowa into a poster child for a surfer, surface water crisis because they can't keep their water clean. The city of Des Moines pays millions of dollars a year to clean chemicals out of the water that comes to them from the township. So much so they tried to sue the townships uh, upriver, and they lost. And, so. and just a reminder that um, a point source is like a effluent pipe coming out of a factory, but a non-point source is runoff from farm fields, as an example. As an example, exactly. Or if you lived in London in the 1800s, it's all thousand smoking chimneys burning coal. There's no one plant that you can go to and point a finger at. So <clears throat> that's the example of a command and control approach, which can work, but it does concentrate power. The pick-the-winner subsidies approach, which is where we choose the winners and we give them a leg up, Again, you know, I got I got news for you. If if you strap stakes all over your body and go out in the field hoping to feed the foxes, you're going to find that the jackals come to dinner first, <laughs> and and you're shocked shocked to see that the jackals get that meat first. So, while I don't recommend strapping stakes to your body and going out in the field to attract foxes, uh, it it does mean that uh, when you concentrate power again, that's the problem. You go back to the autocratic model. We're going to concentrate power. We're going to pick the winners. And if the winners are the wrong ones, well, then we all pay. And concentrated political power feeds more the vultures and the jackals than it does the puppies and the foxes. The 
classic example that we can use is from the middle of the Obama administration when Solyndra was given solar subsidies. And according to a, a, an article in the Washington Post, when, the, when that was starting to collapse and fail, all of the conversations internal, and you know how these uh, media sources love to get internal communications, all the internal communications were how to save the presidency and keep Obama from getting painted with that brush. Nothing about whether it was a good idea in the first place or whether the workers who were going to be displaced were you know, at risk. It's just terrible. And just a, a quick sidebar there, for those of you who might not recall, Solyndro is a big solar manufacturing company, and they were making a good product, but their prices were totally undercut by China. Mm-hmm. So they were uncompetitive, and we couldn't subsidize them enough to keep them in play. Uh, another example is the current mandates on Excel to buy rooftop solar, which has created a similar unfortunate subsidy that has Excel paying more for solar from rooftops than it would cost them if they used large array solar plants. And that means that their prices to the consumers have to be higher to make up that difference. And usually, as, as, we, as we hear from the progressives, usually it's the poor that get stabbed by those kinds of processes. So the last method is market force amplification. And the two examples in there are cap and trade, which basically says the government sets a limit and gives out sells permits to people. And then if they don't use it all, they can sell the permit to somebody else. So it's like I'm, gonna, I'm only going to give you 100 gallons of gas a month. And next month or next year, you're only going to get 90 gallons a, uh, a month. And so you have time to kind of readjust your thinking and buy more fuel-efficient means of transportation. And, you know, you just make it all work. Uh, but the final method, which is similar but is much more freedom-oriented, is a tax on carbon. And Alan is going to explain that in eye-watering detail. <laughs> Thank you, Bruce. So a carbon fee and dividend. Uh, this is putting a tax on coal, oil, and natural gas as it comes out of the ground or into a port. And then that money is all collected, and the dividend portion is that, that all that money is returned to American households. So we don't pick the winners, and we don't grow government. We collect taxes from fossil fuels, and we give that money to people. And one would quickly ask, well, how does that do anything? And we'll talk about that in a moment. But so currently there is the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act of 2021, both in the House and the Senate right now, being discussed and collecting co-sponsors. And it's not only the best solution, but it's absolutely essential. Why? Because you only need one bill to cover all the different sources of CO2 emissions versus many different bills to cover all the different kinds of sources. So it's simple, it's efficient, and it's hard to cheat on. And it steadily increases the cost of all things carbon-based so market forces, market forces move people and businesses and corporations towards non-carbon-based resources for their needs. And for an example, uh, somebody might not care at all about 
an electric vehicle and they might love their gas truck. However, when the new Silverado comes out that's all electric and it ends up eventually being cheaper than the gas truck, even people who don't care about climate change will buy the electric. You know, one of the fun selling points for the all-electric vehicles is they have acceleration way above the internal combustion engines because they have so much torque at the low end. So you can really appeal to the chest-thumping males that want to have a little screeching power on their tires uh, <laughs> with an electric. So, And then also, <clears throat> uh, of course, if you have a steadily rising fee on carbon fuels, that means that the price of food, heating, cooling, transportation, they're all going to rise. And that would be a regressive tax on low-income folks. But through the dividend portion of this, returning all that money to American families, the low- and middle-income families are all protected from rising costs by the dividend. And this is something that's an absolutely essential part of anything that we might do. And then we have a border adjustment, which protects our businesses from imports from countries that do not yet have a carbon fee. And finally, and critically, nothing decreases CO2 emissions faster than this plan, and we need it fast. And this is where you come in. And you can really help. Start calling your federal rep and your two senators every month and simply asking them politely to support the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. And let me tell you something about that act. The, the first pushback you're going to get is, what about China? What about, you know, what about all these other countries, India and China? And the answer is, because it has a border adjustment on it, we basically export our pricing policy into their markets by charging them at the border. If they want to ship something into the U.S. and they haven't paid a carbon fee on building it, then at the border they're going to write a check to us. And that's already happening to us when we go into Canada because Canada has a border adjustment. And the European Union is talking about having one as well. So when you have to talk to those Congress people. Just remember to mention to them, you've heard about this, you understand it, and there is a way to not make it penalize American industries. So, yep. And right. so a quick, a quick recap, there's three big solutions to the climate challenge. There's command and control, pick the winner, and a market forces-driven carbon fee and dividend, and climate scientists, U.S. economists, the GOP Climate Leadership Council, the Nonpartisan Citizens Climate Lobby, and Bruce and I <laughs> all think that this is by far the best solution. And who cares about all those other people that think it's important? Alan and I are all over it. So for links to today's story, please see the KYMN website and look under programs for The Climate Show, where our stories are archived. And next month, on Wednesday, June the 2nd at 11 o'clock, We'll be discussing the science and economics of sustainable agriculture. Don't miss it. Oh, that's going to be a good one. I'm going to love that. Anyway, climate willing and the glaciers don't come into the windows here. We'll be here next month with another edition of The Climate Show. You've been listening to the KYMN Climate Show, airing the first Wednesday of every month here on 95.1 FM and AM 1080. 
Your hosts have been Bruce Moreland and Alan Anderson. Copies of today's show are available for podcast at kymnradio.net.